Welcome to From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Face front, true believers. This is George Soroy, and welcome to the latest edition of From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios, a month-long celebration of all of the Marvel movies that came out in theaters before and during the run of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This would not be possible if it weren't for the National Podcast Post-Month Challenge, so I want to thank Jennifer Navaretti for putting this whole thing together. For anyone who is not familiar with this challenge, it's very simple. You record a podcast episode and you post it every day for 30 days in November. That's it goes perfectly with uh, National Novel Writing Month. And even though my word count has definitely suffered uh, the past few weeks, I can safely say that I've been keeping up with all of my podcasts. So I expect to reach that that 30-day milestone on time. And I'm really, really thrilled about it, especially considering that I've had a chance to basically kind of go back to my 2019 show and give it a full overhaul, give it more material, better production value, recording it in my recording studio, also adding an intro and outro. It's it's just been great. It's been great doing this. And I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to all of these as well, because I've noticed that my listenership has definitely increased this time around from what it was in 2019. I really look forward to your feedback. Please go ahead and check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash from duck till dark. Always looking forward to your feedback. And 2012 was a very interesting. Not only did we get early on the sequel to Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which was discussed in the last episode, but 2012 was also the one-two punch, just like 2008 was the one-two-three punch, you can say, with Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, followed by The Dark Knight. Here in 2012, we got the hit that everyone had been waiting for ever since the end credit scene at the end of Iron Man when the Avengers initiative was first announced. We got to see the Avengers. And man, that was such an event, getting all of those characters on the big screen at the same time after going through five solo movies with everyone. And the box office, obviously, they're all big hits. But they weren't the kinds of colossal hits that we would be used to seeing on a regular basis from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there was a little bit of skepticism in the industry about whether or not this was going to work. But thankfully, it did. Over $1 billion in ticket sales. And the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe was off and running. And we also got the finale of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. And I really enjoyed that one, The Dark Knight Rises. But at the same time, I enjoyed it more watching it at home with the subtitles on, because that's the only way that I could really kind of keep up with everything that was going on. There was a very dense movie. There was a whole lot going on. I'd consider it the third out of the three in terms of place, in terms of placement. 
But it was still definitely a recommend to take a look at. And sadly, it has the stigma attached to it of the tragedy in Aurora, uh, Colorado, which is still just absolutely unbelievable that, that happened. But we got something else in the same summer of 2012. And it's something that normally would have been the marquee movie of the entire season. But instead, it wound up getting shifted down to third place, if that. And that was the reboot of, of Spider-Man called The Amazing Spider-Man. Here's a little uh, background of what was happening behind the scenes. Sam Raimi was still attached as director of the Spider-Man franchise after Spider-Man 3. Um, Sony did not want to leave it as just a trilogy. They wanted things to keep moving on. And there was still more to explore with that franchise, um, especially considering the fact that Peter and Mary Jane's relationship had been very, very fractured as a result of what was happening in Spider-Man 3. So this was supposed to be an attempt to kind of reconcile the two together. And they were also supposed to have Dylan Walsh reprise his role as Kurt Connors, Dr. Connors from Spider-Man 2 and 3, Peter's professor in college. And he was supposed to make the full transformation into the lizard. And... There were some other things that were talked about, and Sam was definitely still attached as of 2010 because there was a possibility of some footage being filmed at Top of the Rock, the observation deck at Rockefeller Center in New York City. And I know that because I worked there for my last two years in New York. I wound up working there first as a host and then a few months later as a lead. And it was a terrific job, worked with some great people there. And there was a period where I was watching the elevators while one of my associates was taking a break. And while I was there, I was asked by one of the executives at Tishman Spire. They were the ones that were basically operating top of the rock behind the scenes. And I was asked by one of the people there if they could bring in a VIP to go to the top floor themselves. I said, fine, bring them over. And as these two gentlemen are walking in, I noticed that one of them was just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking to the other guy. And the other guy was just kind of nodding, going along with it and everything. But I looked at it, it was just like, man, he looks so familiar. He sounds so familiar. And all of a sudden it hit me and I leaned over to talk to the Tishman Spire person. And I just went, is that Sam Raimi? And she nodded. It was, it was him. And there was a moment where I was so tempted to basically tell him a little bit about not only about being an extra in the movie For Love of the Game with Kevin Costner, which I was, but also to talk a little bit about the documentary that he took part in for Edward Dewa Jr.'s film, Plan 9 from Outer Space. There's a great documentary on one of the discs called Flying Saucers Over Hollywood. And there's this one scene where, where Sam and... An, a writer, I think it may have been Scott Spiegel. The two of them were reenacting the Tor Johnson episode of Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life. So you have Groucho Marx played by Sam and Tor Johnson being played by, by Scott. I believe it was Scott. And so they basically just did the whole back and forth. They knew it by heart. And I got a real kick out of that. So I wanted to say something, but unfortunately I did not. And he went up the elevator and 
you know, was out of my life for that brief period. So he was still attached to this franchise for quite a while. But if there is no movie that is in development after a five-year period, this is the typical thing for any sort of IP that's going on around there. After five years, the rights get reverted back to the original rights holder. So Sony was very, very close to losing the rights of Spider-Man. And considering everything that happened since then, that would have been just absolutely gut-wrenching for Sony to have lost so much money. And you have to look at it like that, unfortunately. But when they could not come to a fully creative agreement, Sam Raimi walked. And the original script that was written up by James Vanderbilt wound up getting redone and it wound up and actually it wound up being uh, one person who was taking part in this I believe was Steve Cloves the the screenwriter of the Harry Potter films and Mark Webb came aboard Mark Webb was more well known for doing uh romantic comedies but he was um he was doing all of a sudden this comic book property and a big comic book property. A lot was riding on this. And because Sam walked, the everyone else walked as well. And the script was reworked into a reboot. But what was smart about the reboot was knowing what was there before. Because this is about only 10 years since that original film and only five years since Spider-Man 3 was out. So a lot of the stuff that was going in was going to be immediately compared to what had come before. Therefore, so much of this had to get changed around and so much of it had to be avoided. And a lot of the decisions that were made were very smart. Um, choosing to not even bring in J. Jonah Jameson and the Daily Bugle, very smart. Um, you can't touch what J.K. Simmons did. Bringing in Kurt Connors and setting him up in a different way, very good idea. You want to keep going with that and focusing on Gwen Stacy instead of Mary Jane. Huge, huge improvement. If we had just had Mary Jane all over again, right then and there, it just would not have worked. It would just been like, again, it's bad enough that we're doing again with the origin story. And therein lies a big problem. They were in a bind because the 2002 origin story was told so perfectly. Now, I give them big props for not doing the organic web shooters this time and going with a cartridge that Peter was able to design himself. That was great. That's huge. That was a really great, great addition there. And I was okay with the moment where he was trying to show up Flash on the basketball court. But at the same time, there was the whole scene with Uncle Ben trying to work his way around saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And he just went off on this tangent and then just finally said like, responsibility. And the whole scene that culminated with Uncle Ben getting killed was terrible. Absolutely terrible. No convenience store clerk cares that much over a penny dish. They just don't. I did not buy that whole scene at all. It was way too convoluted and it was just mishandled so, so badly. And it's a shame too, because I really like what Martin Sheen was doing as Uncle Ben. I thought he did a solid job. He definitely 
wanted to push the parental figure element that Uncle Ben was. Um, but it was trying so hard to not do what was already done so perfectly in that 2002 film. I understand why you want to go a different route, but this was not the route to go. Now, one thing that I really, really enjoyed was Andrew Garfield's performance. And for mainly as Spider-Man, because Tobey Maguire nailed Peter Parker, but there's a really great dynamic with Peter Parker and Spider-Man, because once Peter Parker puts on that mask, he gets to act in the way that you can tell that he had been wanting to act for so long, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it because he was such a wallflower. And so you get moments like that with Andrew Garfield's performance. You get to see a little bit of it in that basketball scene with Flash. But once he puts that mask on and he becomes the Spider-Man that we all know, he is free to act the way that he feels that he should be able to act. And so he is cocky as Spider-Man and he does quite a bit of joking and the sort of stuff I thought really, really worked. And comparing that with Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, there are very few moments here and there where you can tell that he is free to be whatever he wants to be once that mask is on. During the Bonesaw, the, during the Bonesaw McGraw scene in the first Spider-Man, when he is mocking Bonesaw, that's something that Peter Parker, un, without a mask, would not have dared say. But because he's got the mask on, he lets it out. And we only see that a few times in the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. So it was great to see that really be fully realized in The Amazing Spider-Man. But overall, I feel like this one was definitely lacking in excitement. Um, it definitely felt like it was dragging in the middle. And there are some parts of it that there were, there were a lot of parts in it that worked, but overall, like there was, some, it just felt like there was something missing. It's one of those cases where um, it wasn't supposed to be as good as it was basically because of all the back and forth that was happening behind the scenes about with Sam Raimi, will he or won't he? And having to basically hustle to get this brand new script done and sent out. Overall, I would give this one a weak recommend. There were a lot of things that worked. And there were some things that didn't, but those things that didn't were really, really amplified by the fact that they were so pivotal. And therein lies the big problem. When those moments don't work, then the rest of the movie was basically just playing catch up. I did enjoy the Stanley cameo, and I did get a kick out of how the cranes were uh, reconfigured at the end so Spider-Man could successfully make it across, but I was not a fan of the James Horner score. And I, I hate to say that because James Horner was one of my favorite composers and it's still gut-wrenching that he died the way he did. He had so much more to give us, but this, this film, unfortunately, was not James's finest hour. And it's a shame. It's a shame to say that, but that's the truth. The score is not very good. But overall, I would say, again, weak recommend and but at the same time, there was a lot I enjoyed. So I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on this. And especially considering the fact that since December is right around the corner and we're going to be getting Spider-Man No Way Home, we are going to get the lizard coming back to us. So it's almost like watching The Amazing Spider-Man would be homework. And so 
If you'd like to check it out, by all means do. I, Like I said, I give it a weak recommend. Maybe you like it more, maybe you like it less, I don't know. But I'd love to hear your feedback. So, again, you can find the show at facebook.com slash from duck till dark. And until next time, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward and excelsior. I'll see you tomorrow.